This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. If you can make God believe, people will cease to believe in him. And there will be blood in the water. And the sharks will come. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I am your host, James Hamrick, and I am joined by my co-host, Gabe Green, who delivered a, a fairly, you know, competent Russian accent right there, I think. You know? oh, oh, really? I was about to apologize to the nation of Russia. Uh, well, you probably still should, <laughs> you say so? because... <laughs> Because for me, anything that sounds mildly like that, I'm like, oh, that's a good Russian accent. Well, it's uh, great to have you back, James. Um, I think things actually went fairly well without you. Maybe we should uh, just do that the whole time. Fine. Just get Ryan on if that's what you're trying to say. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. I'm sorry, James, but it's over. We had a good run. Right. <laughs> uh, so we are currently in the MCU. Uh, last week, we did uh, The Incredible Hulk without you, and I'm actually going to probably going to get you to do a, a short opinion on that on that film before we move into the main topic so now we are going to be talking about the third film in the mcu iron man 2 uh, before we do that i want to ask you guys if you enjoy the show please head over to itunes and give us a rating and review uh, uh and also subscribe to the podcast that would be very helpful and uh if you want to you can head over to facebook and like us there at franchise fatigue podcast uh you can you know keep up with the latest episodes and leave feedback that might get right on the show and speaking of feedback, I asked on Facebook and Twitter what our listeners thought of this film. And Alan <laughs> commented with the Simpsons gif of the kids on the couch just saying, meh. <laughs> Amy said, I actually really like this one. Now, in 2019, it fits in too well with the typical Marvel movie. But back then, it was the first time I had seen superheroes working together, and I thought it was super cool. That is, that's, a, that's an interesting point, actually. Um, we have superheroes working together. You know, you have uh, Iron Man, uh, War Machine, and Black Widow all in one movie. Um, had we had a team up like this before? In probably I not really. Uh, outside of you know just X Men movies, but that's kind of a package deal already. So yeah, I never I never thought of it that way, but that's a pretty pretty good point. Shane said, "Not sure why this one gets hate." Stark grew as a character. Potts grew as a character. Granted, the B-Villain and Hammer ended up making more of an impression than the A-Villain Whiplash, but the movie is fun and advances the Iron Man arc in ways that pay dividends later. Samuel said, fun movie and good introduction to certain characters, but still the weakest Iron Man movie and one of the weaker films of the whole MCU. And on Twitter, Jeremy Barramy at Jay Lincoln said, it's Marvel's first true attempt at telling a story while building a larger world, so it's understandable that it's the only film in the universe that feels like it exists only to introduce what comes next. It's among my least favorite of the series, but still I enjoy it. That seems to be a fairly common uh, opinion on the film. So yeah, before we move into the, uh, the behind-the-scenes production of, on Iron Man 2, James, I, I do want to get your quick thoughts on The Incredible Hulk since you weren't here to give them last uh, last week. Uh, so I really enjoy the movie. Um I know there's a lot of a lot of jokes between us that I, I hate it because I, I rank it you know pretty pretty close to the bottom. Wait, but didn't you hate it like a year ago? I'm, I've I've I have never a very hated strong it. impression of that. I, I've never hated it. I've always enjoyed. It. I've always just I've always said that there's not an MCU movie I hate. In fact, there's not even an MCU movie that I dislike. Um, three stars is the lowest I give any of them. Uh, I put it at the very bottom for a while. Uh, I put it. Well, I won't spoil it. It's not at the very bottom for me anymore. It's still definitely lower than you have it, but I enjoyed the movie. 
so my, my quick thoughts on it though are, so just a, a brief rundown of, of positives and negatives. Positives are, I think the action is really well done. Uh, I think it's really fun, really exciting. The, the initial transformation in the, uh, into Hulk uh, is really cool after the chase scene. That whole scene is, is really good. I like the way they play with shadows, the initial reveal. I think the campus scene is really cool. Um, and I think the ending fight scene is freaking awesome. Like the seven-year-old kid in me who just loves seeing monsters punch each other just goes wild for that scene. <laughs> uh, I think Ross is actually like a pretty good character within the film. Uh, I, I like him quite a bit, especially in terms of like the MCU where sometimes the villains are, are a bit lackluster. And, and Tim Roth is just awesome. He's ridiculous, he's one-dimensional, but he's awesome. So it doesn't really matter. Um, and that the ending tease of the bigger world with, with Tony Stark is, is really cool. Uh, and I think it's also really well paced. I think it moves, it, it's, it has an idea of where it's having to go, what it's trying to do. So it, it never really feels offensively bad. The, the things that I'm not a big fan of, I've, I'm a huge, huge fan of Edward Norton. I feel like he's kind of sleep acting his way through this movie. Okay. That was good. The good thoughts games. Let's move uh, on. <laughs> nope, you gotta you gotta hear a little bit more balance. Uh, I think that he and Liv Tyler have no chemistry at all together. There's not a single spark between them, and I, I'm just really really bored when the movie's trying to uh, trying to convince me to care or even think that there was ever a relationship between the two. And um, honestly, that's mainly it. I just I'm not quite like I I don't really care for Bruce Banner until the Avengers. Uh, in this movie, I, I am enjoying it for its technical merits. I'm enjoying it for the way it moves, for the way it looks. Uh, got a really good score, um, but I'm not invested in his plight. It just it doesn't feel convincing or engaging. Uh, and I think out of five stars, I give it somewhere between three, three and a half, um, and. Probably, probably three and a half, just because I think Leterrier is really good with the action here, and I think he hits a lot of strong marks uh, on the technical side of things. But between, like at that point where it's, when it's just that and Iron Man, it's it's Iron Man first, and then Incredible Hulk after that. Okay, all right. So uh, moving into the uh, the story behind Iron Man two. As soon as Iron Man was deemed a success on its release in 2008, Marvel announced a sequel with an intended April 2010 release date. Favreau signed on to direct in July after renegotiating. Um, I'm assuming he made a lot more this time. So when the first Iron Man was in development, they initially planned for a trilogy with the Mandarin being the villain in the first film and Obadiah Stane becoming Ironmonger in the sequels. And I did not know this at the time, but I think it's kind of interesting seeing as both you and I thought were thinking that it would have been better if Iron Man, I mean, uh, if uh, Stane did not become Ironmonger in that first film. Yeah, so look, I, what I got from that is we should write these movies. <laughs> After we see them. Yeah, right. that's how I should go. <laughs> uh, yeah, so obviously that did not happen, so they had to come up with a different story. Uh, Justin Thoreau was hired to write the film on Robert Downey Jr.'s recommendation. Uh, they had just worked together on Tropic Thunder. Mm -hmm. They wanted the film to explore Tony's struggle with alcohol, but uh, both Thoreau and uh, Favreau were very clear you know, from the beginning that they were never intending to directly uh, adapt the famous Demon in a Bottle story from the comics. Uh, for the villain, they chose Whiplash, uh, but they combined the character with the Russian villain, the Crimson Dynamo, uh, 
well, one of the Crimson Dynamos, Anton Vanko or Vanko. Um, and Mar- Marvel also wanted to use this film to help set up characters for the upcoming Avengers movie. Uh, they introduced Black Widow and gave Nick Fury a sizable role as well. There are conflicting reports as to just how much contention uh, Marvel's interference caused during production. Um, some people, like some people, say that this is why John Favreau left the franchise and didn't do didn't direct the Avengers movie. Others say he wasn't brought back on because he cost too much money at the time. But either way, pretty much everyone's like all the stories say that there was a lot of interference in making this film, and it, it, it's part of the reason, you know, part of why it ended up the way it did. And I'm not just sure how much I buy the stories uh, that Favreau left the series because of this. I mean, he you know he continued playing Happy Hogan, you know, to this day. He's going to be in a Spider-Man: Far From Home, and he's always like, I've watched a lot of interviews over the last few weeks, and he's always incredibly positive about Marvel, his relationship with them. And I watched like an interview with him on stage with him and Kevin Feige with kind of like a round table after like a 10, a 10 year anniversary celebration for Iron Man. And they were, they were just great together. So I, mean, you know, he's an actor. He could just be acting, but it does seem that he's very proud of the work he did and he, he's still working with him to this day. So I don't know how much truth there is to that. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if it was just Favreau saying like, I'm, I'm, I'm not really wanting to come back in the director's seat, especially considering, you know, there was a little bit of negotiation and talks. It wasn't just this like, all right, time to step into the director's seat for, for Iron Man 2. It, it wasn't that instant deal. So if considering, you know, the second one kind of got the reception it did, it wouldn't surprise me if he was just like, hey, I'll be happy Hogan again, but I'm just, I'm not really up for directing anymore. At least you know, within like such a high stakes series. So when it came to uh, casting the film, Robert Downey Jr. was still under a multi-film contract, and so he came back receiving a an increased uh, uh, payday. Though Pepper Potts uh, is once again played by Gwyneth Paltrow, and as we just said, John Favreau returns as Happy Hogan. Uh, but there are some stories for some of these other actors. Uh, so for Colonel James Rhodes or Rhodey. Terrence Howard did not come back. Uh, and he didn't? And you know I what? I look back and I it's not him. Uh, huh. So, uh, I guess a, a quick rundown on, on what seems to have been the case here. Uh, so, on Iron Man 1, I've seen it reported by many different sources that he was the first actor to be cast as well as the highest paid actor on the film. Which is just crazy. Like, you... You would think Jeff Bridges and Gwyneth Paltrow were bigger at the time. Yeah, I think he was just, I mean, he was hot off of Crash and, uh, mm. oh, what was that, High and Low? Was Hustle, Hustle and Flow? Hustle and Flow, that's it. <laughs> One of those. Uh, he, was, he was really well regarded um, at that point. He had two big wins just before. And so I, I think they saw attaching his name, I mean, although, you know, Jeff Bridges is no such either, but... On you know they got this guy who's really at the height of his you know critical perception and it was a big deal to get him maybe that just just conjecture but um, anyways there's a lot of unofficial talk and rumors again that I've seen from different places none of this is official though um, that Favreau and fellow execs weren't really happy with his performance I've I've seen like in three different articles I've read from like typically like fairly credible places that uh that it almost gave them trouble in editing just because there were there were takes that they didn't like and they didn't want to go back for reshoots and so it kind of made editing harder than than they wanted it to be which props uh, to their editing because i really like his performance i do too <laughs> i i've always liked his performance in the first one 
Howard, uh, who says, you know, he championed uh, Robert Downey Jr. for the role originally, uh, said that he asked uh, Downey Jr. to put pressure on the studio after he was offered a significantly smaller amount. Uh, this is taken from a 2013 interview he did where he says, it turns out that the person I helped become Iron Man when it was time to re-up for the second one, he took the money that was supposed to go to me and pushed me out. We did a three-picture deal, so that means that you did the deal ahead of time. It was going to be a certain amount for the first one, a certain amount for the second one, a certain amount for the third. They came to me with the second and said, look, we will pay you one-eighth of what we contractually had for you because we think the second one will be successful with or without you. And I called my friend that I helped get the first job, and he didn't call me back for three months. Uh, and there's a quote from Robert Downey Jr. Uh, that he did an interview, and this was prior to Iron Man 2 coming out, so this was kind of still during the heat of things, or he had stated, I had nothing to do with that decision. I love Terrence very, very much. There's all I'll say because I haven't talked to him yet. I've always admired Don Cheadle. It's one of those situations where I still don't quite know what happened or why. Here's what happens too. Things happen and you wind up commenting on them before you've actually talked to people and it's in poor taste. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's also a story that says um, due to the poor uh, experience that Favreau had with with uh, Howard, he and Thoreau had like drastically reduced his role in the sequel, and that was part of why they offered him lower money. You know, uh, Thoreau denied this, but of course he would. Yeah, um, as so I, said, I saw that interview as well, where apparently you know these a lot of these rumors are big enough to where these guys are hearing it because yeah, he he denied it whenever it was brought up to him in an interview. But but again, that's something else that you you kind of see in enough interviews, and maybe there's a bit of credibility to it. Um, things seem to be okay between. Uh, Downey Jr. and Terrence Howard, though, uh, they took a picture together and Terrence Howard captioned it with, you know, uh, life's too short, it's all good still. So maybe they're friends. Uh, after the deal went through, though, they had to recast the character. Um, and so the first person they called was Don Cheadle. Uh, and he has some, some quotes about the whole process. He said, I met very early on before the first one with John Favreau and the team, and I guess there was a split. Some people Terrence, some people me. They went with Terrence, and then I did everything I could to sabotage so that I could come back. <laughs> he said, though, that whenever he was called about it, it was following the uh, the firing of, of Howard. It wasn't like they were testing the waters with other actors first. Uh, for the villain, uh, the A villain, Whiplash, uh, Mickey Rourke was off. Uh, was hired to play the the role. He was initially offered apparently two hundred fifty thousand, which is also apparently what what Jackson was also offered for his role, and he was vocally displeased with that. But it's not really known if that was negotiated to a different price. However, the drama with Rourke didn't just end with the money. Uh, Rourke has famously hated the final product ever since its release. Uh, he said, when I did Ivan Vanko and Iron Man, I fought, you know, I explained to Justin Thoreau, to the writer and to John Favreau that I wanted to bring some layers and colors to the character, not just make this Russian a complete murderous, revenging bad guy. And they allowed me to do that. Unfortunately, the people at Marvel just wanted a one dimensional bad guy. So most of the performance ended up on the floor. It is effing too bad, but it's their loss. If they want to make mindless comic book movies, then I don't want to be a part of that. At the end of the day, you've got some nerds with a pocket full of money calling the shots. You know, Favreau didn't call the shots. I wish he would have. And then in an interview, I think like three years later, he, he was still quite angry because uh, he said, if they let you play the bad guy with other dimensions other than one dimensional, you have to fight for that though, to bring layers to the character. Otherwise, if you're working for the wrong studio or let's say a director that doesn't have any balls and they're just not gonna, uh, 
then they're just going to want it to be the evil bad guy. So if you're working with some good studio guys that got brains and you're working with a director with a set of nuts that'll help you incorporate it, then that's fun. Otherwise, you end up with what happened on Iron Man. Uh, so, so there's... I, I He's sense, an interesting fellow. He is, man. Interviews with him are, are all sorts of... He did an interview on, on a, I think it was Jimmy Kimmel or something whenever he was doing... Um, Sin City or Sin City 2 whichever one he was in <laughs> and uh, he he was asked by by Kim was like he asked him do you like com- do you like comics or comic book movies and instantly just goes well I don't like Marvel blah blah and he just goes right on back <laughs> to his spiel uh, pretty great stuff uh, so as he said Nick Fury comes back in a much bigger role this time uh, but money issues also seem to be an issue when it came to bringing Samuel Jackson back uh, and at this point, multiple actors have complained about Marvel lowballing them initially. Um, so apparently, in this this early stage of yeah, films, yeah, we forget that they were an independent studio at this time. That's true. Uh, there's some funny quotes from Jackson. He said, uh, "During the time, this was while the negotiations, and Jackson was very vocal during the negotiations. He said, uh, there seems to be an em- uh, economic crisis in the Marvel comics world.'" And then in a following interview said, uh, there was a huge kind of negotiation that broke down. I don't know, maybe I won't be Nick Fury. Apparently part of this uh, trepidation was due to differences in money, as well as the fact that they were approaching him with a nine film contract and he didn't want to feel as if he was signing away his future career. Uh, Which he then promptly did. Exactly, well, I'm glad he did though, because he's freaking amazing. Fortunately, all of this was smoothed over though and they got him back for the film. Uh, for the character of Black Widow slash Natasha Romanoff, the studio was in serious talks with Emily Blunt for the role initially. However, she had to back out due to scheduling conflicts with Gulliver's Travels of all films. That uh, hurts. That yeah. really hurts. Uh, after this, Scarlett Johansson was quickly approached and she signed on with the option for returning for multiple films. And uh, there didn't seem to be any drama in getting her on. You know, one of one of the few actors who, who joined this film with, with little little fuss. Lastly, for the major characters, the villain Justin Hammer was played by Sam Rockwell. Uh, there's a lot of side characters here though. Phil Coulson uh, is played once again by Clark Gregg in a little bit bigger role this time than he was in the first one. Uh, Kate Mara appears as a process server, which is really odd. <laughs> um, Olivia Munn appears as apparently Chess Roberts, a reporter at Stark Expo. Well, she, had, she had initially had a larger role that was cut and they reshot that kind of cameo for her. Yeah, because they, they did the reshoots the, the year. It was just a few months before release, I think, in February. Um, John Slattery plays the, the very Disney-esque Howard Stark. Paul Bettany returns, of course, as the voice of Jarvis. Uh, Gary Shandling appears as United States Senator Stern, who is actually named after radio personality Howard Stern. Uh, Adam Goldstein appears as himself, and the film is actually dedicated to his memory. Uh, and then Tesla Motors CEO Elon Musk and Oracle Corporation CEO Larry Ellison both appear as themselves. And Stan Lee, of course, gives his cameo, this time playing Larry King. Uh, and Favreau's son, Max, appears as a child wearing an Iron Man mask, and this has retroactively been confirmed to be... Whose son? Uh, Favreau's son. So that's oh, actually Max uh, Favreau, uh, the very first chronological appearance of Spider-Man now. Supposedly. <laughs> hey, if they said it's canon, if Feige says it's canon, it's canon. Uh, whatever. 
hey, come on, that's sure. just fun. Uh, it, I don't know. It, it it doesn't add or change anything. It just feels like it feels like they're pulling a role. No, I mean, it's definitely just like, hey, why don't we do this? It's it's you could call it cheap, but I don't know. I, I one, I see absolutely no harm in it, and two, I think it's just a nice little moment considering you know the considering where things go with their relationship i actually like that little moment now kind of understand why he's a he's such a big fan of stark i think it kind of works so filming began in april of 2009 matthew libatique returned as the film's director of photography uh the majority of the film was shot at the raleigh studios uh film was also done at the edwards airfield base um, they even got footage on location at the 2009 monaco grand prix the post-credit scene was directed by kenneth branagh thus beginning the uh, tradition of getting the director of whichever film comes next uh, to film that movie's post-credit scenes. Uh, as with Iron Man, this film, uh, this movie went into filming without a finished script, um, but it seemed to have caused far more problems. This time, they also didn't have nearly as much prep time. They, they had less than two years uh, from announcing to, to write, produce, and uh, release it. It's also worth noting that during this time, on uh, December 31st, 2009, Disney purchased Marvel for $4 billion, uh, but Paramount still retained all the uh, distribution the distribution rights for all the main Avengers characters. So for post-production, uh, the film, like most blockbusters, uh, underwent reshoots. These took place, as we said earlier, in uh, February of 2010. The film was announced to be shown in IMAX screens, though it wasn't actually shot for that format, so it, it had to be converted um, I guess that was back in a time when a lot of these blockbusters weren't automatically, you know, ready, ready to go for IMAX. Yes, following uh, like what uh, Nolan was doing with the Dark Knight and all that. Industrial Light and Magic again uh, did the majority of effects for this film. The uh, IML, our ILM's visual effects supervisor of the film, Ben Snow, uh, actually said their work was a lot harder on this film. And uh, after the success of the first and just how incredible the effects look, Favreau was asking a lot more of them this time around. Said uh, on the first Iron Man, this is, I, I use this quote just because I think it's it's really cool because it's, it's something that we've seen for a lot of these. This is kind of like commonplace for a lot of these kind of suit effects now. Uh, but he said, on the first Iron Man, we tried to use the legacy uh, studios, Stan Winston's effects company, and Stan Winston's suits as much as we could. For the second one, John Favreau was confident we could create the CG suits, and the action dictated using them. So Legacy created what we called the football suits, from the torso up with a chest plate and helmet. We'd usually put in some arm pieces, but not the whole arm. In the house fight sequence where Robert Downey Jr. staggers around tipsy, we used some of the practical suit and extended it digitally. Same thing in the Randy's Donut scene, but in the rest of the film, we used the CG suit entirely. For the, the film's music, a soundtrack album which was essentially just a best of ACDC album was released for the film. <laughs> and, but most of those songs don't even appear in the movie. Yeah. I, I think only like two or three are in the film, but it was, I it felt presented as like, this is, this is Tony Stark's like typical playlist. The actual score would be composed by a longtime collaborator with Favreau, uh, John Debney, along with Tom Morello, who returned Though the track Make Way for Tomorrow Today was composed by Richard M. Sherman of Sherman Brothers fame. These guys who did like Mary Poppins and all kinds of uh, awesome Disney stuff. Yeah, kind of a big get for them. Uh, it premiered at the El Capitan Theater in Los Angeles, California on April 26, 2010. Uh, it ended up releasing in 6,764 theaters uh, between uh, April 28th and May 7th, 
before going into general release in the United States on May 7th in 2010. All right, Ada, do you remember your first time seeing this movie and like what what is your relationship with it been like over the years, James? Yeah, so I I saw the first one and really loved it. I saw this I saw Incredible Hulk and my naive youthful self thought it was just as good as Iron Man 1. So I loved both films at the time. And my dad And did you know they were connected? Uh yeah. Well, I mean Robert Downey Jr. walks in at the end. Uh, so yeah, I, I was, I was really excited and I, I kind of, I had a vague understanding. I watched a lot of the cartoons and stuff, never read the comics, but had a, a vague understanding of like what the Avengers was. So when he said, you know, like, I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers initiative, um, or no, in this one he is, uh, let's just say we're putting together a team. I was like, okay, this is awesome. Um, and my dad actually really liked Iron Man as well. So we went out and watched Iron Man 2. I remember it was a really awkward viewing though. Um, Cause I was like a young teenager, like maybe like 14 or 15 at the time. Uh, yeah, I would have been 15. And, and there's like just the, for some reason the playful joking about like his alcoholism and everything, it, it set a really weird vibe for the whole movie. And so we both walked out and even 15 year old me who, shouldn't even care about this was like, oh, that wasn't good. You know, I, I figured that, you know. Because of the alcohol? No, stuff? it was just the whole thing, like watch like the, the drunken fight, the peeing in the suit. I was like, this mm. is dumb. Like I was, for whatever reason, a lot of the movie did not work for me. Um, so we both walked out fairly disappointed initially. Uh, but I, I saw it a second time sometime quickly after it came out and I ended up liking it a lot more the second time um, so initially not a big fan but I ended up enjoying it and it's kind of been the same way for ever since that second viewing of it's it's never been one that I just absolutely love but I've always really enjoyed it uh, and I know a lot of people aren't the biggest fan of it um, but for me you know it's definitely got significant issues but in the moment, it's uh, it's still a really good time. Yeah, so I actually saw this before the first Iron Man. I, I don't remember if I saw uh, The Incredible Hulk or Iron Man 2 first, but I definitely saw this before the first Iron Man. And I thought it was really cool. I uh, didn't, you know, I mean, it's men in metal suits punching each other and cool, cool music. So, yeah, I liked it. Um, then, you know, over the years as the MCU was coming out, um, I, I remember seeing it again, and you know, I still enjoyed it. I think, I, I, to be honest, I feel like I've only seen it twice, maybe before the big rewatch leading oh, up wow. to Infinity War, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then when I saw it, then I, I, I still had a good time, but like all the film's problems really became clear to me, and I, you know, understood you know, why it's kind of had that reputation among. MCU fans and whatnot. And so, yeah, going into this latest viewing, I, I enjoy it, but I am also very much aware of this film's issues, you know, despite having you know a fairly decent time with the movie. So, yeah, let's just move into the, the general discussion. Uh, this film is going to be interesting. Like, just, I don't even, like, when you say, what is the story of this movie? I can't even tell you. I don't, like, I don't even know if it actually really has a story. There are a lot of there are there are stories going on, you know. You have Tony is dying and he's dealing with his legacy and his daddy issues. Ivan Vanko hates Tony and he wants and you know he wants to kill him. Justin Hammer is here. He wants Vanko to build Iron Man suits to beat you know to be, to defeat Stark Industries. Um, 
And then there's the government wants his suit, and now Nick Fury is coming out of nowhere telling him to, you know, shape up and be a better person. It's just like all this stuff is going on. And I like there are connections between all of these. Like, you know, Stark's daddy issues is playing into Ivan Vanko because, you know, Stark's dad got Vanko's dad banished. And so like there are like loose connections between the plots, but they never really play them out. So it, watching this movie kind of feels like you just like watch I'm watching this subplot. Oh now I'm watching this subplot and now I'm watching this subplot and now they're all at the end and they're punching each other and it's fun, but when it ends, I'm not really left with an impression of what this movie was about. Yeah, it, it's weird that there's not that one overarching thing. It's interesting reading about some of this. Uh, Shane Black uh, offered advice for both the first one and this one, and apparently one of the one of the things pieces of advice he gave here was that they should focus on uh, kind of mirroring the story. Of of the man who helped create the atomic bomb. I forget was Robert Open something. Oppenheimer. I think that's it. Oppenheimer. Um, who who is essentially just plagued with guilt after the war. Um, He's the guy who's like I have become death yeah, and destroyed the guy. or whatever. Um, Oppenheimer. Okay, yeah, him. Uh, he said he should essentially create like a use his life as like a, a little mirror and a, a way to help outline this. And I think that would have, if they focus more on that. I think that would have been really interesting because the idea, except he, well, I, I, that would make sense for the first one where he's reckoning with the legacy of, of, you know, of being an army. I think dealer. not so much. I think it one. could work really well here because it could be a way of making Tony second guess himself, you know, cause you have that last line or you have that line from, Stain where he says, ironic, you tried to rid the world of weapons and you gave it its best one yet. And that could play into Tony's arrogance. You know, Tony ends the first one thinking, or and begins this movie thinking, I have successfully privatized world peace. There's still so much ego and arrogance here. And I think that mm-hmm. it would have been interesting for him to say, like, to to actually see that line from Stain actualized. But like, you in your ego and in, in your puffed up state and your, you know, your self-righteous almost kind of war on uh, against your old legacy have just created this new weapon and now we're seeing the product of it you know whiplash is you know we have that interview from stern it's like well it's here now um so i think that could have been a really compelling story to see him struggle through of like you know you've got such such a good feeling from the first one where it says you know finally i found like something that i know in my heart is right and then to have him even question that for part of this film to to question if he really has salvaged his legacy you know because it and then that works into uh the whole thing with uh vanko you know maybe this technology that he's using is built off of the shoulders of someone else so just to to create doubt over over everything over what he's done and cause him to really fight for it i think would have been interesting yeah, but the film kind of does the exact opposite by it's, you know, it's Gary Shandling is the one trying to say, you know, see what these weapons have become. You know, look, Ivan Vanko now has this technology. Pandora's box is opened. You sh- like the people calling for the, you know, for a reckoning are the the bad guys. And Tony's like, no, this is all cool. And in the end, he proves it. Yeah, it's all cool because I'm awesome. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> that's and the story. I, that's, that's why I would have preferred them going with Shane Black's direction because to me that what we got isn't quite as interesting. And that, that moment's always rubbed me the wrong way. Like as much as I love the Senate hearing, the, the yes, dear line, like that scene is one of my favorite <laughs> scenes in the movie. Prostitution? Of course not. You're a senator. <laughs> 
but like whenever he's like, uh, oh, so and so ten years, so and so, you know, Hammer Tech fifteen years, or you know, the idea is like, well, man, that's that's within our lifetime. Like that's within, like that's literally only a decade away from each other. So you, it's not even like you're saying. We'll deal with this, you know, way, way off in the future. Like, no, like, that's literally the next decade. By then, he'll have built Ultron. The world will be good. I guess I just, I, I didn't like how flippantly he dismissed this. And I think it would have worked better if he still flippantly dismissed it. But, like, in his moments of weakness, like when he's checking his blood or, or these other moments. If, if his flippant dismissal of this tech came from a place of guilt, maybe he thought there was more truth to it. I think him thinking there's more truth to it and actually having to fight to prove what he's done is right instead of just spending like the opening of the film to the end of the film self-assured that no he's got the right idea um it would have been more interesting and more dramatic so the the whole thing about he is dying and this is him reckoning with his legacy the whole stark expo is you know uh, my entire life i've you know made a made profit off war and death and destruction so now i'm building this giant expo trying to gather everyone together to make the world better and that's the thing because i you know to to go out on this high note kind of like a guy nobel created the nobel prize after uh basically you know built, creating uh, tnt which was used in weapons so like that's the idea but like and 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 there's also the issues of his you know his daddy issues his father's legacy and you know his father's legacy is Ivan Vanko, but like what comes of that like Vanko never brings anything close to resembling a credible thematic threat to him. He's just a bad guy who wants to kill you know I want to kill you because your daddy hurt my daddy. That's it, and it never comes beyond that. He doesn't really care about Stark or his legacy. Really, I mean. He says he does. Like he says, you know, if you can make gold bleed, you know, I, I, you know, the sharks are here. All I have to do is sit back and watch. And yet he doesn't just sit back and watch. He instantly goes after him again and tries to kill him. Like there's all this talk about legacy and about you know that, but he just like you know right before the third act he fixes himself. You know, out of the blue he finds that he synthesizes the impossible to synthesize element, and he's good. And all of that, all of that angst is instantly forgotten and we're just going forward and kicking butt it's like these ideas they they just never gel yeah that's one of the big issues for me with the the character of of whiplash where the only evidence first of all the the whole thing is based off the idea that uh his father was completely ripped off by by uh howard stark that like they created this technology together he, it was stolen, but like, we just take him at his word for it, you know. Like, there's, we don't get anything more than him saying plainly, like, "This is what happened." Well, we get two other stories. One story is he was a spy; his dad kicked him out, and then then Nick Fury tells him he was actually like a profiteer, and then his dad kicked him out. Yeah, but like, neither way. But both of those are just like these single sentence things that they don't feel like they enrich the the story and. And they certainly yeah. don't play up this idea of legacy, you know. And it it, it gives Tony very little to reckon with. Well, the, the only threat to Tony's legacy in this film is Tony himself being a total jerk and self destructive idiot. Exactly. And this, you know, his whole idea of you know, if you can make God bleed, like, well, how are you? Like, I mean, I guess you did that by like hurting him a bit at the Grand Prix. Just 
this whole idea of tarnishing well, I, I, I his think legacy. I, Iron Man really came out on top in that that scenario. Yeah, exactly. And so this this whole I- idea of like letting letting them destroy themselves in front of the public, it's it's my problem with most of the plots here in this film is the movie pays lip service to an idea and does nothing more with it. So he wants to tarnish his legacy the way his father's was tarnished, but we don't really actually see that. You know, we want to see uh, Tony struggle with with his life, with everything going on, the the consequence of announcing to the world, of not only bringing this technology into the world, but but pointing pointing the technology back at yourself. And so, you know, we the whole, and I know they weren't going for a straight adaptation of Demon in a Bottle, but it's like, you're still trying to deal with with that struggle in some way. And all we get is like a stupid party scene and we kind of recover from that pretty quickly. And it's just, it's all of like, here's a little idea. Okay, bye. Here's a, here's another little, okay, we're, we're not there anymore. It's just, it's all of this very surface level dealing with ideas. Mm-hmm. And like I say, I would say same with the daddy issues. It's, it's, it's hardly ever touched. There's only like two scenes where it's dealt with. And and then you have that message from his father, which is you know very nice and very sweet, but it's also part of this really cryptic message that he, oh. where he hid the design, the atom design of the source of infinite power inside of a model for the Stark Expo, in hopes that his son would one day invent three D scanning technology and uh hologram technology so that he could then find like discover this model and use it and synthesize it and create unlimited power i guess it's so it's like a, a laura croft mystery or something where it's like why like it makes us like he's he has to hope that this model is not only you know not destroyed but but again not, or not lost but that his son is actually able to find it and figure out what he's trying to say it's, it's so ridiculous and the fact that this one this thing he he hid is exactly what he needs in this moment it's it's like it's like beyond just stretching incredulity it's just like it just doesn't mean anything it's one of the most contrived deus ex machinas ever of like the yeah like like we said the the thing that you've hidden decades before happens to be discovered right at the exact time this thing that and it's not even like the idea of like the nece- the necessity of this element like we get it it's it's been teased in that he needs something new to power the suit but it hasn't been teased that there was some sort of secret that Howard had you know mm-hmm. uh we don't even realize Howard had been working on anything like this until it's pre- like until the solution is actually presented so it's not even like you know that there's Howard's always been cryptic about something that he knew. It's it's never there, and, and so yeah, the thing is, the drama is driven by conflict, and this film is so devoid of conflict because Vanko provides absolutely no conflict for Tony's internal struggle. So like all the all the energy for his internal struggles has to come with him, maybe from Pepper, from Rhodes. The great the great villains are the ones that speak directly to our hero struggle. You you can have a great internal struggle without a villain, but you know, it's a missed opportunity. Um, and so for, for like the main struggle in this film, which is, you know, he's dying, how to fix himself, how to save his legacy is just solved with absolutely no conflict. He doesn't have to do like, sure. He has to make a laser, I guess, and look really sweaty as he wields a monkey wrench on it. But 
there's no re- there's no emotional conflict to, to 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 fixing this problem. It just happens, and it happens before the third act is over. I mean, the, for the se- happens at the end of the second act. So the third act, there's there are no more. I guess there's his relationship with Pepper, but not really. Okay, but, but but that's you know that's a subplot of a subplot. Over like there's absolutely no emotional weight going into that third act. There's no questions. There's no conflict. There's just bad guys to punch. And more than anything, the circular energy looks way cooler than the triangle. True. Yes. That's its best or its worst crime because that that circle of light on his chest. But that's a really really cool laser, though. That's true. Um, yeah. So <laughs> let's go back to some positive stuff. Uh, just you know, I do want to talk about uh, Josh, uh, Josh Sweden, just John Favreau's style, you know, directorial style in this film. Uh, it's very similar to the first one. There are a couple little changes I noticed. How one, I think the saturation is a little higher. It's a bit more colorful overall. I really like that. Also, the the red and silver suit that whole Monaco scene that is just so wonderfully colored and shot and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the camera work feels a bit more composed. It feels like there's less handheld, less of that. You know, the more independent style that he brought to the first one. Like the shots feel a lot more intentional. I mean, we get you know a lot more of the cool, just cool looking stuff. Uh, they were still shooting with live action plates for most of the CGI sequences, so like that all looks great. Um, they were, uh, you know, you said that. Uh, Favreau was asking a lot more of the, the effects t- effects team, and you can really see that um, just in the motion that like the the kind of acrobatics they're getting out of these suits is definitely a lot more than the first one. I think it's a little bit to the film's detriment. Like there are a couple scenes where it does look kind of pretty computer generated for the suits, but still for the most part, it, it still looks pretty cool. Yeah, I, I think the the movement is still by and large really good. One of my favorite thing like moments is whenever the the whip lashes around him and he like grabs it and he's moving and pulling closer and closer. Yeah, because that one's really grounded. There's very little flipping and jumping and stuff. You know, they're both pretty much just staying on the ground. Yeah, and uh, it are like it still looks like metal to me. Like it's still just it looks like you know heavy objects clanging into each other and again like that's helped out by the amazing sound design just every step the the energy the like the burning sound from the the whips is awesome uh Mm. the the sound of like the laser when he shoots it at the end everything like the entire sound of the last stand with war machine and iron man there when they're just ripping out like yeah. eight guns from their shoulders it's so great yeah speaking of the Monaco fight like that's just that that is a fantastic sequence and just one, one of the like a fine illustration of why this movie isn't for all its problems isn't necessarily bad uh i, I think you know i have issues with some of his self-destructive tendencies but you know, you know i'm gonna die in a month why not just ride in the grand prix that's a very tony stark thing to do and it makes sense um so you know it's, i think it's a good uh expression of that kind of self-destructive subplot but then just the way it moves into it, the build of that scene is really good watching um Vanko walk out onto the tracks with, with his uh, jacket burning off from the whips oh, it's so amazing it, it it's so good there are so many like the, just, in this sequence alone there are so many like truly iconic you know for a marvel film that's often dismissed and kind of forgotten like there are so many iconic moments in it like that yeah, just slicing through the cars as they come by it happens like two or three times. It looks so freaking amazing. Like there has to be some kind of practical element to that. I, th- I think they must have been f- actually flipping cars or something because it looks so good. And that that first shot of them turning the corner, that really wide shot where the you got the depth just a little off. Like everything in the background looks a bit fuzzy, and them coming in front. It's so cool. 
Mm-hmm. But then as the sequence builds, <laughs> Pepper and Happy just crashing into him. And apparently he has indestructible legs or something. Uh, but just that, I love that scene because everyone's yelling at each other. <laughs> like he's trying to get the door open. Happy just keeps backing up and ramming into Vanko. So the door's going, you know, Pepper's freaking out. Vanko's trying to kill them with the whips. Tony's yelling, throwing me the suit. It's like all this, it's just this, like, you know, one minute long sequence of just pure chaos. And it's really fun. One of my favorite moments in that is like after they think they're done and he's got this, like he's walking back over and he's still just yelling. He's like yelling about like some annoyance he had now that reminds him of a problem they had earlier. It's like in his mind, it's all done. And they're back to like their day to day bickering as he walks to the car. It's such a great sequence. And then he cuts the door in half. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's really good. But then you lose. Yeah, but I think. I'm willing to bet that this is the best suiting up uh, montage in the the history of Iron Man in the MCU. Uh. That suitcase thing is so freaking cool. I just like the way the way his arms shoot out to the sides. Uh. Um, It's so good. And the little bitty plates on the arms, they'll stick out and Mm -hmm. then they fold back in. Yeah, that whole suit is so much slimmer and all the silver in it. It's so good. Yeah, it's and then it's just a, a fun fight, and I, I think we should probably talk about Vongo. Um, I think Rourke is really good, except that, that scream in the beginning is terrible. Like, did no one say let's try that again? Well, I don't know. I kind of like <laughs> when, it. when his when his dad dies. It's it, to me. It, it's it felt not acted like just really awkward, but maybe in a way that it would be awkward in the presence of like your dead dad. <laughs> Yeah, but maybe it's also just because I I mimic that scream all the time and I like it. Yeah, I am very interested in, in, as to what exactly Rourke was bringing. Like he thinks I don't like I don't I don't know if I entirely believe him, but he thinks he made a real a really complex character. Um, like I don't like what kind of I don't know what kind of motivation they would have added to him otherwise. So, but as far as what we got, I think he's pretty good. Um, I like how he's just kind of quiet and all those scenes with you know with um with hammer he just kind of sits there watching him sizing up and he'll like say one or two words like i just like the way he just kind of looks at him uh because that's pretty much all he does in the entire film but like for what he does which is very little i think he does pretty well yeah you know as far as motivations there's not a whole lot here but but you know oftentimes and as a huge lover of this series you know the villains aren't always the best part but I I actually really enjoy him, you know. Like there's there's not much to the character, but I think he's doing he's maybe he's not having a blast. I don't know what his experience was like, but I really really enjoy his performance. And I I mean I quote the the you loser I want my board <laughs> like so many iconic drone better. Uh, it's a fun character, and like he said, the way he plays it, there's a very very specific way. He's regardless of you know the one dimensionality of the character itself he's not playing him like that he's playing him like this is a real guy who really believes what he believes and he's angry about it and he's ready to manipulate and lie anybody he sees like as intellectually inferior to him you know manipulating hammer and everything knows he's like the smartest guy (laughs) hey man don't get too attached to things learn to let go such a such a great line uh and and it's funny because he said uh, in an interview he said the hardest part for him was was playing somebody who's very technologically savvy um, because he's like I'm not at all and in a weird way, like I kind of completely buy that like I, I buy that he is a genius like he's just a smart 
bulky brooding guy who doesn't say anything like there's something about the way he's sitting there with his hair back looking at a computer with his glass i'm like yep i buy it he's he, he knows what he's doing um just all in all i think for all the crap that he's given and that he gives himself it's a fun and memorable character for me and the, the scene where uh, Hammer leaves him with the two guards when he goes to the expo, and then the next shot we have when he calls Tony, you see, you see the two guys hanging in the background. He's brutal. And his, his escape, like, there's a lot of... He snaps, like, a neck as he's running out. The guy is also just physically terrifying. You look at him, especially, you know, when he's stripped down whenever Tony Ferguson walks in there, and you just see, he's like, this bulking mass. He's a physically intimidating-looking guy in this. Yeah, and he, then, he started as a boxer. Yeah, and I flip and believe it too. You just you put the toothpick in his mouth and you you give him a Russian accent, and he's like the scariest guy in any room. Yeah, and just to run through some of the cast. So speak, so, you know, speaking of uh, Don Cheadle, um, he do, he doesn't try to mimic Howard at all. He brings his own spin to the character. I think the guy we get here is a lot more composed. He he bears it. He he he's a, has a lot more self respect. Than the character that Howard played. And I like that about Howard, just kind of how pathetic he kind of was. Sheetal comes in and he's much he's much more on top of things. He's and he doesn't let Tony get to them in the way Howard did. And I, it's so wonderful and meta. When when he when he first walks into the Senate hearing and he goes to Tony's like, look, I'm here, it's me, deal with it, let's move on. <laughs> it's literally like them saying, Yes, this is this is Rhodey, he's a different actor, we get it. Shut up, let's go, let's, let's continue. It's really funny. He doesn't get a lot character-wise to do, but you know, I think he, you know, he's always cool. He's 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 great when he's in the suit. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's fun, and that's pretty much it. Uh, I I like his portrayal a lot, and that that idea that he's not mimicking Howard. He he said that in interviews. Like one of his favorite things about coming on board was he he asked and was told that you know feel free to make this your character. This is your interpretation, and so. This was like this was him making his own decisions as an actor. Uh, one of the things that I like about it is you, he feels a lot more like like that kind of straight edge military kind of guy. Um, and straightest back I've ever seen. And he, I mean, he's also just a cool looking guy. Uh, like in his military suit, in the war machine suit, he's just, he looks like he you know he deserves his own like solo movie. Uh, but also by by not being as much of a pushover, just like there's a I love the back and forth with uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Terrence Howard, but uh, but I think uh, Cheadle goes toe to toe with with Tony in a way that I really like. Like at the very end, and he's like, "Get your own roof," and he's like, "I've been here this whole time." Like that last exchange, you're like two seals fighting over a grave. He's he has. A comedic delivery that is so dry and funny, and and it, like you get just a taste of it here. But I, I, for me, every line from him in this movie, especially every comedic line, is like just golden because I, I also am just a big Cheadle fan. But the way they explore it over the series, like the way their friendship plays out, I really, really love him, and I, I love his take on the character. And I think for someone who's just who's coming into the second one after the huge success of the first. He does a great job of like cementing himself in this new dynamic. Like yeah. there, like there was in the first one, by the end of this film, you understand what their dynamic is together, what their relationship is, the way they banter with each other. He he cements himself in in the world of Iron Man. Yeah, it helps because he has a much larger role in this film than 
the characters in the first one. Um, and the War Machine suit is just the definition of badass. Yeah. Like it, it's absolutely overkill. It's ridiculous, and yet it's so cool. He has a big gun. He's not the big gun. That last scene is just pure magic. Size does matter. Don't let anyone tell you any different. And then before we get to it, Justin Hammer, I do want to talk about uh, Pepper Potts' Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, I, I'd forgotten like how kind of tenuous the the romance was in this film. I, I like talk, when we talked about uh, Iron Man. We talked about how we liked how they didn't like jump right into romance at the end of that film, and like they don't even they they pretty much hate each other for the majority of this movie, or at least she hates him and he's just doesn't seem to care. Like he's he is driving her completely insane. Um, like uh, there's a cool touch where he's selling the art collection. And we're in the first film, like they were, they were haggling over whether or not to buy a Picasso. Like I think, like good kind of character continuity, and I, I love the way. Well, it's horrible, but like the way Tony will, will like just drive her up the wall, and then just like come, come with something big to mollify her. Like he's just driving her crazy. He won't tell her anything. He won't commit, commit to anything. And then he turns around. I'm gonna make you CEO. Like she's about to quit her job. Then he makes her CEO. Like he's able to, like just almost burn these bridges down with people. And they turn around and do like do something really amazing for them, and, like to just keep them in this really precarious relationship. It's also the the line that we get a callback to in, in Endgame, you know, where it's like, "It's you, it's always you." And then, uh, ah, you know, we got that his little message at the beginning, which is always nice, makes this even more touching on on revisit. There's a there's an interaction that they have at the like towards the end of the climax, which I'm like ninety five percent sure was a reshoot. Like after after the battle's over. Like it's like in the middle of the battle after um after Black Widow ta- retakes control of the of the um war machine suit and he's like he tells her I'm not dying anymore and then Pepper like pops up like you were dying it's a really weird thing like it's like why would why is there any kind of connection between um Black Widow at ha- Hammer Industries with wherever Pepper is but whatever like it makes no sense. But like it's really funny because like, that, that's how she finds out he's dying, and the whole the whole back and forth is literally the camera panning between one screen with with, with uh, Tony's face on it and panning over to another screen with Pepper's face. And this is just this like really fun back and forth. You're like Pepper, don't be mad. I am mad. I will personally apologize to you when I'm not fending off a hemorrhoid attack. <laughs> Fine, <laughs> we could have been in Venice. Oh please, <laughs> it's just they're so great together i'm pretty sure that had to have been a reshoot like because that scene makes no sense otherwise and it's literally just their faces on a screen so it would have cost nothing to shoot well it was a a good investment in my opinion because despite not making any sense i absolutely love that scene because i visual comedy when done right is just amazing and like whenever her face for like it just pans to her face and it pops up and she you know it's like you are dying That, that moment is hilarious and uh one of my favorite lines, oddly one of the most quoted lines from me is he's like, I was gonna make you an omelet and tell you. <laughs> it's just that whole exchange is fantastic. Yeah, like uh, they they have so much amazing chemistry that even when he is being so terrible to her, you want that well, you want it to work out. And at the end when they finally kiss, they finally acknowledge that yes, we belong together. It's it it works despite how toxic they've been previously. And and I love that it doesn't betray that, you know, that nice ending of Iron Man 1 where it's like, it's still kind of like, you know, that there's this unspoken thing. I'm glad that we don't jump into this like, oh, two months later and they're, you know, dating steady. He's still like, like you said, there's this whole like kind of 
semi bitter. It it doesn't do this whole like this uh really convenient like I'll make you CEO and our problems are solved and we can be together and it's like that makes everything worse. <laughs> exactly. Like now she has all these responsibilities. You know, if she was having to deal with this crap before, now she's dealing with every single piece of junk that's just always he's constantly creating problems for her and the fact that like we don't actually get to like this this romantic acknowledgement until the very end of the second movie it's a continuation of that whole like we're genuinely invested in this character and the relationship and and we're taking it seriously yeah and so uh, moving on to one a character that pretty much everyone universally loves with a Justin Hammer played by Sam Rockwell and my entire notes on him is just a series of quotes uh and I, I know you're a big fan so what do you think of him uh not so I, everybody likes it, and yet despite that, I still think he's underrated. I th- this guy <laughs> is just phenomenal. Every single moment with him is a joy to watch. I think you put it best before we recorded. You said it's like he's just on the verge of being cool, but he's not there. And so everything he does, it's like, man, that's really cringy. It's like Tony could have come out and done something so similar, and it would have been so effortlessly charming and suave. But he just doesn't uh-huh. quite have that spark. So his his whole dance out onto the stage is a, an incredible little moment to watch. And, uh, and he's trying so hard and to the point where you know he's trying. And the moment you know someone's trying, it ceases to be cool. And like everything about him is he he's the guy like the. The, the loser guy who's just like I he wants he, pro- he probably like has a picture of Tony on his wall and like watches videos of Tony Stark trying to figure out how he does it <laughs> but he just it just never works out for him uh, it's so like as horrible of a person he is it's almost like so pathetic that it's sad like you know he's getting this big interview and all of a sudden Tony steals his thunder and he's like uh he's like oh we kid we kid you know and he's still trying to like fight to make the interview back to to being about him it's he's just such fun to watch and I, I love him like being the guy in power like being the guy with the guns his little his whole like cell for all of the weapons to to uh Rhodey is incredible the whole the ex-wife bit you know like sniffing it like a cigar being like this cool like attempted it's capable of busting the bunker underneath the bunker you just busted if it were any smarter it would write a book a book that might, would make Ulysses look like it was written in crayon and then it would read it to you I call it the XY. It's and, and again, like back to the idea that like he's trying so hard. Everything he says feels so rehearsed, and that like you know, for you know, he's such a goofy guy. He's really funny, but like for all of that, he's also just like giving an incredible performance. Like all of these things that make him so great aren't just like that. It's not just by chance. It takes skills at acting to try to play someone who is putting on like putting up this like this fake persona trying to be cooler than they really are and so it just if the desperation feels so real and he can never stop like even though he, he just he's always digging the hole further um and he's also such, like such a narcissist like where he assumes the fact that he's talking means he's communicating with Vanko. <laughs> like he just, he just keeps going on and on Vanko just stares at him he's like oh cool Got a deal, great. And he leaves. And then, you know, Valkyrie doesn't do anything he says. And he comes back like, hey, I thought we had a deal. What's going on? <laughs> All right. And, man, though, he he also, like, takes any moment to, t- like, to try to assert himself into some position of power. Or he takes, like, when he feels like he's in power, he does something that just 
makes him look like the guy in charge. Like the one of one of those petty little moments. It's like man, in real life, you would just want to punch this guy in the face. Is it's like when he's looking at the drone helmet. It's like, hey, can you can you fit fit your head in there? Like just any normal person is like, hey, no, it's too small. It's like, no, try, try. I'm, I'm making a point. Go <laughs> ahead. He can't fit his head in there. It's just he's so such a d bag in it, but he's just such a fun d bag that it's so much. You know, it's just it's a pleasant watch. He's he's great in every second yeah. he's on. I just took your stuff. How does that make you feel? Do you feel bad? Good. I don't know if you don't know this, but I don't speak Russian. <laughs> you know, I find myself rarely in the right context, but that's another line I quote a lot. Yeah. Like, I, I normally like to talk about story and talk about characters when we get to them, but there's no freaking story. So we just got to have to, like, roll through the characters. Um, then there's our Black Widow, uh, you know, slash Natalie Rushman. Uh, no, Natalie. Natalie Rushman. Uh, Natasha Romanov, or, you know, all, whatever other alias she has. Uh I like Scarlett Johansson a lot and I think she does what she can with this role, but it, it's, it's like, there's so little here. Like basically all we have is, you know, she's sexy. She's very capable. She's sexy. She can hurt people. And she's also sexy. Did, and did she mention, uh, did we mention she's sexy? Like, that's it. That, that, that's what the character is. And she does it well, but like, there's so little here. Yeah. She's not a, a character at all here, but. Oh yeah. I, I really, I still like her performance a lot. Like her, her performance as like this, this fake with Natalie Rushman, like it feels like that typical kind of like in over her head secretary where, where uh, Pepper is there and she's like, where's her? She's like, oh, I don't know. I blah, blah, blah. And, and Pepper's just like, ever since you showed up here, all this has been going on and trying to play like this innocent person who's, who really doesn't know what's going on. And the way, like when she slips out of that, like when she steps into the ring and all of a sudden you can see like, the capability in her face as she, you know, eyes him down. I, I I like the way she kind of flips between like this fake persona she's putting up and, and like getting glimpses at the person there. And, and then whenever she reveals herself as black widow, you're fired. <laughs> great reveal. Uh, again, there's, there's no, it doesn't, that reveal doesn't come with any additional character, but Whenever she's just able to be cool and tough, and, and the fight scene is awesome, the watching her kick butt is super cool. It's it's a little bit like mid two thousands trying to be cool. Like we talked about how the first film was so effortlessly cool; it never had to try to be cool. That sequence is like, yeah, aren't we cool? We're cool, right? Yeah, this is so cool, right? And it's it is cool, but it does feel like it's trying more than the rest of the films have been. Maybe, but it. <laughs> I mean, it, maybe it's just because it kind of like reaches that level of cool that I don't even think about it. I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. That was really cool. And I mean, just the the whole like I got online. The whole scene is great. Yeah, I, I do like like Widge. Like she kind of plays the very you know competent, helpful uh, assistant to Pepper. And then when Pepper walks in the room, like yo, it means you can either drive yourself home or I can have you collected. <laughs> She's like that. She'll slip back to the entirely no nonsense, like cold as ice, Black Widow. It's a lot of fun to watch. Um, and I do like initially Pepper's like comp- really irritated that Tony hired her, you know, because she knows the kind of person Tony is, you know, she's potentially a very expensive sexual harassment <laughs> case. Um, but then I love that instantly the next time we meet, she's like been like, she's kind of adopted her as her own assistant. And uh, Tony's like, you know, it's like I lost both kids <laughs> in the divorce. Like the interplay between the characters is really what keeps this this movie going. And then uh, there's uh, Nick Fury. Um, 
can you believe this guy was 60 years old when this movie was made? I mean, he looks the same now as he did then, and I can't believe... I mean, he does, yeah. But he, he looks like late 40s, maybe 50. Like, he's... Like, the dude has the, a natural energy that is just insane. Um, and then one of the greatest quotes of all time, Sir, I'm going to have to ask you to exit the donut, which is so perfect coming out of his mouth. Um, you I kind of... You do kind of wonder why he's in this movie. Like, isn't... You know, coming into the open to convince a billionaire to stop partying, isn't that a little below his pay grade? Uh, but, and like, why does he care so much about Stark's daddy issues? Like, it's, like, he comes in, he's great in his scenes, but he did, he really feels out of place, especially for when we realize, like, when you go into the Avengers and you realize who Nick Fury actually is and what S.H.I.E.L.D. actually is, for him to be coming out here personally just feels weird. Yeah, I, I guess it's because, you know, he. He wants the suit and he wants Tony. I, I think, I don't know, maybe you... Well, they don't want Tony. <laughs> Tony Stark not recommended. Well, that's, that's the thing. I think I think the reason he was fighting for him to fix himself is so that he wouldn't get that. And I, I think I'm arguing on behalf of the movie in a way the movie isn't arguing for itself. But, like, <laughs> maybe there's the idea that, he, like, he knows it's going to be best if you get the guy himself. It's going to be a whole whole hassle trying to get the tech from him and, and this and that. So if he can find a way to fix himself when we get the package deal, that's going to be like best scenario. Still ridiculous, but it gives us some great exchanges. So I'm okay with it. Oh, this is one of my one of my favorite lines from Ezra is like, uh, like he took your suit. The brother just walked in and took your suit. It's it's amazing. Every line from him is golden. Speaking about that scene. I, I don't like that fight scene at all. It really makes no sense. Like for the entire time, Rhodes has been presented as the responsible one. And the reason he takes the suit is because Tony's being destructive. So what does he do? He goes and destroys his house. Why? Because? Like that whole fight, you just wonder, like, why doesn't Rhodes just leave? Like, why did he go and confront him? It doesn't make any sense. And it just feels like, oh, we got to have a cool fight because we haven't had one in a few minutes. So let's have them fight. Um, I mean, I think one, he want, he was, it was an attempt to keep Tony in check. You know, Tony's drunk with a suit. It's best to keep him at the house, you know. Maybe. But but he was he like he leaves him with the suit like not, there's no the status quo is exactly the same at the end of the fight. As far as Tony's concerned, uh, he knocks him out, put him in his place, sleep it off. I'm sure but he blew up a house to do it and Tony's fine after that like, and he's still he's still in a suit yeah but he's sober now uh, is he mostly maybe <laughs> I don't know that just it just feels so contrived I think if it like I, I it's not even the destruction of everything or like the motivations everything on paper I'm kind of fine with my issue is like the animosity of the fight feel is where it feels fake to me like they've been at odds with each other but there seems to just be like a level of disdain for each other in that scene that i i don't think we built too organically mm-hmm. well then uh, another small role you have a uh, clark greg as uh, agent colson i just love there's something i like he he doesn't like there's he does so little he's you're know, so calm and monotone he barely speaks and yet I don't know, something about him I just have a lot of fun with. And I think this movie has probably his best line, you know, if you attempt to leave or play any games, I will tase you and watch Super Nanny while you drool into the carpet. He's, he's, he's weirdly one of the most likable guys ever. 
Like, even when he's delivering lines like that, like this cocky guy who's just walking in and bossing Tony Stark around. Because he's not cocky. He just knows what he can do. He knows what he can't do. And, like, he knows he knows his abilities and he's just confident in them. He He's also, like, one of the best banterers around. He will, like, swap lines with Robert Downey Jr. and not at all be, like, the weak link in that exchange. He's, he's so good uh, with every, like, He's got a quick comeback that matches Tony beat for beat. Good luck. We need you, Mr. Stark. More than you know. Not that much. I guess the final guy you mentioned is uh, Gary Shandling as Senator Stern. Uh, this guy is like, I feel like he's like an older Justin Hammer who's not as rich. He's like just so sleazy and pathetic. Um, and he's great as that. Yeah, he's so annoying, but in a way that works really well in the movie. Uh, I love his last, you know, like annoying or funny, annoying how, or it's funny how annoying a little prick can be. Uh, <laughs> you deserve this. I think, like there's just a level of sincerity in it. You know, like whenever he's, he's giving the medal to Rhodes, like there's a, a level of respect for him. <laughs> and then with Tony, it's just pure anger, such a, a fake conversation. And the I love ending with Tony putting up the peace sign. It's fantastic. <laughs> you know the dropping the f bomb on C-SPAN always entertaining. <laughs> so I guess I guess the last thing we would talk about would just be the final drone battle. Uh like it it has no real emotional or thematic weight, but it's a lot of fun. I I do love how the drones move. Yes. I think they're, they're very well animated. They, they feel really heavy and bulky and how they run around it's, it's pretty cool. Whenever they plant themselves in the ground, it feels so real. Mm-hmm. Um I do like what they do with Pepper in this battle, how she just like, immediately goes up and confronts uh, Hammer and just kind of like takes charge there. Um, it's pretty cool. Oh, we don't uh, need to call the police. Oh, <laughs> uh, he's so pathetic. Um, anyway, it's fun. Like just they're flying around and shooting at each other. But that, that final sequence in the garden, that's amazing. And there's just like a lot, just machine guns firing. Like I love where uh, I... Who is it that does that? I think it's War Machine, where he like fires down the center of the uh, the droid and like, like basically splits yes. it in half. Like that whole sequence is so much fun. The, the, the actual confrontation with Whiplash is okay, only okay. Um, and I think the actual conclusion of like crossing the streams is honestly kind of meh. But like before that, when it's just the the drones, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, like that's what this movie is. This movie's fun. Yeah, I, I don't want to end on a negative, so I'll say I really dislike the uh, the confrontation with Whiplash. I like the the, the pointing at each other, a cool callback, whatever. Like, I think it's a neat way to end it. I would have been way more fine with it if there was a cool fight that preceded it. And it was like, all right, this guy's tech is somehow beyond us. We got no idea. And then they go there. But the fact that, like, it's just they so quickly think of that, it's annoying. But to uh, to end more positively on this... I love everything about the drone sequence. I think they look awesome. I love the different uh, paint jobs for each branch of the military. I think that's really cool. <laughs> the presentation of them, the the making them salute is a really, really funny, cool thing. Um, I, I even like the the flying chase. Like even like the little humorous bits and the collection cool bits throughout that all. 
that whole action scene I think is really cool. The the them flying by and you get like a car horn and then the whole drone army flies through and it all it all starts buzzing and then planning the the flight through the the globe and they all crash. There's a lot of cool stuff and then that last battle is so I feel like they cheat on the amount of drones that were present. I feel like there's way more than they were actually on stage. Oh, there's absolutely way more. I'm just going to say there's more under the stage or something. <laughs> but uh but that last battle is so cool. The the using the red lasers is freaking awesome the spin move and it gives us my favorite closing the mask shot when they start landing and each like the drones are so heavy and like as they're landing the the score itself is like matching it with the drums it's so cool and the you got that circular camera movement where you hear tony or uh, war machines clang down and then tony's clang down it's one of the coolest shots and the sound of it is so awesome um, is there anything else you wanted to mention i uh, you, you got the other uh, end credit scene which is Thor's hammer. Um, and you can like just just in that sequence, I could definitely see uh, Brando's much more theatrical visual style going on there. Dutch angles. What was there a Dutch angle? I didn't notice. Oh, yeah. I was just I was just noticing like the pans and the, the rack zooms and stuff that was going on. Uh, yeah, I just I feel like we haven't actually talked about a movie yet. Uh, it's that's the thing. Like, I I think that there it is a, just a collection of a lot of loose subplots. And I think the destination, like the way we get to a lot of the destinations is contrived, but I also don't want to be completely negative on, on the plot itself. I, I like the fact that he's still just this arrogant, egotistical, like often D-bag in this film that they did what he claimed he didn't want to do in the first one, which is I'm a superhero now. Now I'm like Mr. Boy Scout. The fact that he's still struggling, maybe struggling even more so because he gets to back it up with this idea of like, no, I am Iron Man. I'm a hero. I, I like the way it moves the character a little, even if it's just a little bit, at the very end where they're like, you know, Iron Man recommended, and he's like, Tony Stark, not. And they go through all of all of his problems, and he's like, agreed, you know, as they, <laughs> they get narcissistic. And and so it's it's shallow. It's, it's not, there's not a in lot there. In my defense, there. that was last week. <laughs> so And like, it's still, the movie loves its characters so much that like, even when something feels contrived, I still buy it because of the way they sell it. Mm-hmm. I feel like they do. I, I I love most of the ideas behind the different subplots. Like the same with Tony Stark's self-destruct behavior. I think, but I think there, there comes a point where it's so in your face and over the top with how just how much of a jerk he is that it kind of becomes unpleasant to watch. And so I feel like they, they did take it a, a bit too far sometimes. I think the only time that was true for me is like is when he's drunk at the party. I think everything else is just that Robert Downey Jr. charm that makes all of this mm-hmm. work. Absolutely. <laughs> at the end of the season, you're like, if there's one thing you can count on, it's that I will pleasure myself. Like it's <laughs> he's he's often just awful. <laughs> he's an awful person so many times. But I, apart from the scene where we're, I think, you know, we're supposed to really dislike him during that scene. I still can't help but like root for him and laugh at all the terrible things he says. Yeah. Uh, Let's move into the the score. Did you get a chance to listen to the soundtrack, James? I did. Okay. Um, so we, we didn't actually get a chance to like specifically talk about the Iron Man uh, music but in the first film, uh, but I feel like we did kind of cover it overall. Uh, I guess my biggest gripe with this score is that they it's so much more traditional in the, the way it uses the orchestra 
Um, like the electric guitars and drums are still present, but they're they're so rarely the instruments that are driving the music. You know, quite often it's like brass that's taking the lead. So we, we end up with you know, despite being a lot of the same themes, the music ends up sounding just so much more generic and, and just less bold and and thrilling than it did when it was in with, with Ramin Jawadi allowing you know the rock and roll elements the drums the guitars to really drive the sound uh overall I actually really enjoyed it I kind of like the hybrid of like uh letting the rock kind of be this this thing that undergirds everything just it, it's it's present at its most base thing but it is this more superhero like it de- it definitely kind of waters down that idea that they were going for with the first one of like the rock driven thing is what separates him and they they more embrace the like the orchestral kind of superhero theme but i also think it happens to be like a, a really good theme and i think by including like the guitar riffs behind it and there's one like well, i mean it's it, some of these tracks are are really really cool where it's just it's just a guitar shredding and it's amazing um so i, yeah. I still enjoy the the score quite a bit yeah, it's it's definitely good. I I did come off pretty negative. Like it's, it's good music. It's you know, it's fun, but man, there's there's nothing quite like like Golmira from the first one in here. So as far, I did want to mention a couple of the themes that come up, and there's an interesting thing that Debney does with the Iron Man theme, the Ivan Venkos theme, and Rhodey War Machine theme, is that all of them are like a variation of a of a very similar beat. Did you notice that? Where like. It's 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 all like when each one is starting, it, it almost takes me a little bit to realize to to pinpoint which which theme it is, um because you have like Ivan Ivan Vanko's theme is like is very much like a dark Iron Man theme. It's it's got the guitars in there and it mirrors the kind of movement and rhythm, but it's just kind of dark and evil. It's kind of erratic. There's like hints hints of Russian male choir, which I and I love that they didn't go overboard. They could, you know he's Russian, so they could have so easily go on overboard with the choirs and whatnot. But it's it's only just barely present there, which I liked a lot. Um, a couple of tracks where it's present would be Ivan Vanko's uh, Metamorphosis, the Senate slash Ivan creates drones, and then uh, Mayhem in Monaco. Uh, of those, I really really liked uh, Ivan's metaphor uh, Metamorphosis. It's it's a really like playing that over the opening credits really sets a cool tone. Um, it's like this like you said, kind of this almost a dark mirrored version of Tony in the cave. Like we see all the shots of the sparks and as, as you know, he's got the, the mask on and everything we're building there. And, and it has a similar pace as the, like the dun, 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 dun. I'm not going to try to have it. Uh, <laughs> the, the theme of him building in the first one, but, but a little bit slower and a little bit heavier. And we've got like even a darker rock edge to some of it. That's a, it's a really really cool like movie opener. Yeah, speaking of the Iron Man, it's it's pretty much the same thing, but it has a lot more orchestration. Um, you know, much more of the, on the brass and the strings. Uh, a good a good example of the the, the new revamp theme would be in House Fight V One, and then you got a, the Rhodey War Machine theme. I like this one a lot. It's it has the the really badass rock and roll sound, um, but it's very focused. It doesn't have the kind of playfulness and variety of of the, the main Iron Man theme. It has just like this one really awesome rhythm and it sticks to it. It sounds like very purposeful. Like and it, it again, it's, it's a really good thematic reflection of who Rhodey is as a character and what War Machine stands for. You know, he's the soldier. He's the, he's the straight laced one. And I love they're able to get that badass rock and roll feel 
in a theme that also speaks to his discipline and you know his steadiness. Um, and the the uh, good tracks for that would be uh, "Rody Dons the Suit" and "Gun Show." And then the last one I do actually the last one, and then there's another one that uh, you got uh, Tony and Pepper's love theme, which it feels so weird and out of place in this movie, but I love it. It's like this very soft, kind music, like delicate, like almost tremulous. It's just like this really nice sound. Um, I think it has a bit of flute in there. I think it's a flute. Um, it's to the point where. Uh, I was getting like, Narnia vibes. I said the track to you. Did you hear that at all? Uh, I did actually. I don't know if I would have before you said it, but I was listening to it. And then I told myself, like, do you do you hear some Narnia? And she's like, yeah, I kind of do. It's a it's a really weird. Yeah, it feels like Lu- Lucy's wandering through the like snowy woods and looking at lampposts. That was so weird. It was very kind of like whimsical in a, in a way that really stood out from the track or from the score. Yeah, it's a very like lovely piece of music. Um, uh, th- that one is shows up in uh, Making Pepper CEO. And then there's a lot. You know, the, there's the. Uh, Sherman's piece, uh, "Make Way for Tomorrow Today," which is just just very Disney, which is you know obviously why they hired him to get that the kind of you know fifties Disneyland feel. Uh, some some tracks that I liked as well um, was not just the uh, the uh, version that he did with the with the vocals, but just the the "Make Way for Tomorrow" that plays during the Stark Expo before the credits. Like just walking through it, it feels like that fantastical Disney stuff. Uh, I really like Monaco Drive. It's a shorter track, but it's got that like luxurious Bond kind of edge to it. Like almost techno. Uh, there's a little bit of that, but there's like more like it's it's the this kind of higher tone guitar kind of wrist leading into it. Like it's I, I'm waiting to see maybe the Brosnan era Bond step out of a, a <laughs> Lamborghini or something. Um, and then I like the the last one. I am Iron Man. Uh, I think it's actually a pretty good main theme. I don't think it's highlighted very well in the movie. It's it's a it's a weird theme because like it, it is the theme is literally like electric guitar riffs. It's it, it's very I feel like it's very hard to translate into like more orchestral or like just different sounds. Like the whole thing is 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 centered in on you know I am Iron Man. I'm awesome. Let me blow things up. It, like it, 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 I, I don't. That part might be part of why it doesn't really show up much later on. Is like it's, it's so difficult to translate to other tones. And like, and by the time you translate those simple notes, like you've lost everything that made them what they were. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it doesn't do the same thing that it did originally, but I actually still really enjoy it quite a bit. I think, you know, it, even if it's not translating the same ideas, if you divorce it from where it came from, I think it stands on its own really well. I. And this is kind of where my mind's at whenever I, I just describe the, the score as a whole. Of It is more classical. Uh, this is a much more conventional sounding theme, even though it's essentially the same thing. It's just there there is a real discontinuity between it and the original one. But as a standalone thing, I think it's really strong. And I like that, you know, after it swells up and does the typical comic book kind of sound, although not typical because, like I said, I, I still think it works really well. It it ends going back to just this really hard edge with uh, with guitar and everything, so it doesn't completely divorce itself from where it came in, and I, I like it quite a bit. All right, so moving to our star rating, uh, what would you give this out of uh, five stars, and how would you rank the three films we've seen so far? Um, I this is this is kind of like a incredible hook where I I think looking at it from a technical standpoint, I give it three stars, but 
personally, I I have way too much fun, and I almost feel bad saying like this is this is only just like one half a step above being like completely down the middle, which just in my mind does not accurately translate the amount of fun that I have in it. <laughs> the one thing that I I mean we definitely have quoted a lot of the great humorous lines, but. Just as a, to speak to that in general, I think this movie is hilarious. I think it's funnier than the first Iron Man, and it's not in a way that like undermines the drama. the The back and forth, the banter between everything, ha- the between Hammer and Tony, between Hammer and Whiplash, between Rhodey and Tony, and Tony and Pepper. Like, there's just so many great lines. The action is like ninety five percent completely amazing, and so for me, it's three and a half. Uh, I'd go. Uh, Iron Man 1, number 1. Iron Man 2, number 2. An Incredible Hulk, Boo. number 3. I, because I no. care. Even if it doesn't go anywhere, I care about Tony and Tony and Pepper and Tony and Rhodey in a way that, like, my my level of engagement and investment in Incredible Hulk is only barely a blip in comparison to, like, what's going on in Iron Man 2, even if it doesn't really go anywhere. Mm. Uh, so I have absolutely no problem giving this movie three stars. Uh, I guess it's very fun. And that salvages what could have so easily been an absolute train wreck with this script. Um, it's, it's it's entertaining to watch, but like deeply frustrating to think about. I feel like this is the perfect movie to just put on in the background, like when you're doing something else. Like, I think this is one of the few MCU movies that doesn't get better by paying attention to it, which is like such a weird thing to say. But I feel like it, it, it's it's fun when you're just kind of coasting along on its moments. Um, so it's a good time. I give it three out of five stars. I enjoy it. Like it's not bad by any means, but it's it is such a f- frustrating mess. Like when you try to sit down and think about it and dissect it. So going to the uh, the box office, on its initial release, it uh, got $312 million domestically and $311 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of $623 million on its rather large $200 million budget. Um, that's about $40 million more than what Iron Man made. Uh, it received generally, uh, but not like overtly positive uh, reception from the critics. Uh, it held a 74% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 57% on Metacritic. I don't really remember what the audience thought at the time, uh, but it holds a 72% on the Rotten Tomato audience meter and a 6.5 on Metacritics. Um, I feel like this one kind of had an opposite journey uh, like from The Incredible Hulk, where I feel like The Incredible Hulk started more positive and it's kind of like the reception has gotten more and more negative over the years. I feel like people turned on this film fairly quickly, like from from, from the moment where I really became conscious of like of like online film discussion, it was really popular to have this movie. This was this was the worst MCU movie. It sucked. It was terrible. Um, but like in recent years, like most of the last five years, people have kind of come around and like even though I don't, not many people love it. People like as we as we kind of read with our with our um, feedback at the beginning, people are, seem to be a lot kinder to it. It's true. I, I've almost. I feel like I've seen something kind of different where I, I remember watching it and feeling like I was more neg- negative on it than most. I, I think the reception was like, oh, no, it's definitely not as good as the first one, but it's still really good. But that, I, that, that was the initial reception. But I feel like shortly after I, that, it got pretty I don't really for a while. remember the harsh turn. Like, it, it was definitely like at the bottom between that and Incredible Hulk would battle for the bottom for most lists and, and just the general discussion. 
I feel I've actually, and, and maybe it just depends on where you're looking. I, I feel like I've almost seen like an even more negative turn on it in the last few years, almost because like at the time, one, people don't enjoy Thor 1 and Captain America 1 to the same extent that I do, which I absolutely love him. And so whenever all they had to compare it to was like Iron Man 1, which it's, you know, obviously much better than Iron Man 2. But, you know, a lot of people, they could have gone either way for Iron Man 2 or Incredible Hulk. And, you know, Thor and Captain America, the the first one, were like, oh, it's fine, you know. And so it, it wasn't like this black sheep. It was, you know, you could maybe on the lesser end, but all of them, all of them between Iron Man 1 and Avengers 1 are in the range of like meh to okay. Huh. I, I, I remember like kind of visceral anger toward it for a bit. It, it, it could just be, you know, like different different circles or, or websites or yeah. forums or something, but, but it almost seems like a bit more negative now because we've... Marvel was still in the process of proving something. You know, Avengers came in and stamped like, okay... We can not only reach the quality of Iron Man, but we can like surpass it. We're here to stay. This is, you didn't realize how awesome this is going to be. And it's kind of been amazing how, how quality the films have been able to be since Avengers. And so I think with every other movie that ends up being really good, it, it's pushed Iron Man 2 even further and further to the to the back. That, that, that is true. It's usually always within the bottom three for most people. But I feel like I feel like recently people have become like more philosophical about like yeah, like the, the, where they're kind of they, they appreciate the fun it has. I hope so because I I mean even though it is kind of like it's towards the bottom in my list as well. Like I said, there's not a, a movie in the series that I dislike, and and when conversations are just centered on the negative about these movies that I overall like, it kind of bums me out. So I'm I'm totally cool if if we want to just celebrate the the funness of this movie instead of its problems. So guys, that was our review of Iron Man 2. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd like to ask you again to please head over to iTunes and subscribe and leave us a rating and review. If you want to like us on Facebook, we are there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we are on both as at Franchised Pod. If you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? You can follow me on Letterboxd. I am there as J.L. Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Uh, and you can follow uh, or you can join us on Facebook over at the Outer Rim, a Star Wars group where you and I and some other friends are both admins. Uh, we are coming towards the end of a Clone Wars marathon where we're going through all of the, the canon Star Wars as we lead into Rise of Skywalker. So definitely join us over there if you are excited for the movies and you want to talk positively about the series. And I am also on Letterboxd, and there's Gabriel Green. You can follow me on Twitter at Gabe A. Green, and I'm on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. Uh, so next week, we'll be talking about the, uh, the fourth MCU film with Thor, uh, a movie that uh, we both quite love and uh, think is unfairly maligned. So uh, until next week, we will see you in Asgard. Well, today, my friends, the press is faced with quite a difficult problem. They are about to run out of ink. <laughs>